Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits. How old are you, Johnny? She asked. Sixteen. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. A wise old king once said, Of the making of books, there is no end. How true today. Of the overabundance of writing published each year, what's worth reading? The answer is simple. Read only the best. Come join the discussion on Just the Best Literature. Hello again, everyone. Thanks for listening in today. Well, on our last podcast, Deborah and I discussed Marlowe's attempt to help Jim recover from the initial paralyzing shock of his sentencing. Marlowe was compelled to invite him back to his hotel, to his hotel room excuse me, to protect him from committing suicide. Now today, we want to discuss Jim's bad habit of quitting great job opportunities um, when he hears talk of what happened on the Patna. So, welcome back, Deborah. Thank you. It's good to be here. <laughs> yes, I'm glad you're here. Also with us in the studio is producer Parker Campbell, who is, for, is uh, filling in for Gabe, who's teaching either tennis or rugby somewhere at our summer educational program. Now, again, as I said last time, as a word of instruction, uh, Marlo is, or Conrad, I could say, either one. And there's a new, t- new twist now with the book. Uh, Conrad continues the story of Jim by using Marlowe's encounters with people he knows and visits during his own voyages. Now, these people have also had uh, some really good contact with Jim. And again, uh, uh, we're going to focus today on Jim fleeing his past and by changing job after job. All right, so we're going to start on Chapter 18. So, uh, dear, do you have anything you want to say before we get started? Well, you know, we're starting on Chapter 18. Could I just say something about the that last part of 17? Oh, yeah, yes. you sure can. Okay, so so at the very end, Jim was so excited. He said he said he was looked like he was going to have a start with a clean slate, and... Uh, we said we mentioned quickly before that Marlowe seemed to have a different opinion of it, and it just at the end it says, "And I felt sad." Marlowe says, "I felt sad." A clean slate, did he say? As if the initial word of each of our, excuse me, as as if the initial word of each of our destinies were not graven in imperishable characters upon the face of a rock. So it's, he's comparing, you know, the slate, which is which is um, stone. stone with um, graven and characters and a rock, so he's basically he's he's saying that he thinks our destiny is fixed, or at least there's right. a question about our destiny. So there's that that question that comes up sometimes about how 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 is our destiny fixed or created? Yeah. So I, I think that that gets mm-hmm. back to, I mean, some of the other things that Conrad has written. Um, you know, if you go, if you go back to even Heart of Darkness, you know, you had the two ladies that were the the uh, the fates, you know, and that that you know, there is that part of philosophy where people think that your life is fated, you know, that there is you know that there's like something governing your life, but but of course, uh, you know, we we know that's not true. That you have a lot of, I mean, a lot of the way your life ends up is your through your own choices, whether they're good or bad. And, um, you know, and of course, we also know that, that uh, if we have the right relationship with God, you know, we're going to have the right direction and not make those kind of mistakes. 
but yeah, that, he he definitely believed that. He, he believed that that his life was, you know, there was a certain destiny to to life. Uh, one other thing, since you brought that up, I want to bring up something now from from chapter seventeen. At the very last paragraph, um, uh, that well, actually, you you've actually taken the second part of it. But he said, but as to me, left alone with a solitary candle, I remained strangely unenlightened. I was no longer enough to behold at every turn the magnificence that besets our insignificant footsteps in good and in evil. So, so I like that part too. And uh, you know, but but again, you can see that you know, here's a, you have a lot of men like Melville, you have Conrad. These guys were were grappling with deep spiritual issues that they could just they couldn't understand. And this is this is what comes out in these books, and that's why I think they're worth reading, and then certainly this uh, Mr. Gerald Flurry feels they're worth reading because they teach us a lesson about human nature, and uh, you know Conrad had a grasp on it. All right, so uh, uh, now to start chapter eighteen. So so uh, Jim was excited; he got the letter. Uh, now we're going to find out more details. Remember. Uh, Conrad never gives us the details when he introduces something. We have to read, keep reading to find it out. So, so now we're jumping six months uh, forward, and Jim actually got the letter. He went to the, the um, man that the letter was written to, and he was hired. And Jim has really been a great thing. He's, he's actually had a good job. And uh, so, so there's two letters in this this chapter, by the way, that to understand, actually it's got three letters when you consider that Jim's letter shows up too. So uh, you know, uh, Marlowe says, six months afterwards, my friend, and uh, this is, uh, he, he puts in parentheses, he was cynical, more than middle-aged bachelor with a reputation for eccentricity. He owned a rice mill. So this is the Mr. Denver. He owns this rice mill. But he's also pretty wealthy. But he said, he wrote to me, and judging from the warmth of my recommendation that I would like to hear, enlarged a little upon Jim's perfections. So, so what, essentially what Jim has gone uh, on Marlowe's recommendation, uh, he's gone and gotten a job at a rice mill. Um, he goes on to say, these were apparently of quiet and effective sort. And, he, and this is the, what, what the uh, Denver wrote back to him. is says, not having been able so far to find more in my heart than a resigned toleration for an individual of my kind, I have lived till now alone in a house that even in this steaming climate could be considered as too big for one man. I have had him to live with me for some time past. It seems I haven't made a mistake. It seemed to me on reading this letter that my friend had found in his heart, more than tolerance for Jim, that there were the beginnings of active liking. Of course, he stated his grounds in a characteristic way. For one thing, Jim kept his freshness in the climate. And this is what the, the, the man had written back. He had, had he been a girl, my friend wrote, one could have said he was blooming, blooming modestly like a violet, not like some of these blatant tropical flowers. He had been in the house for six weeks, and had not as yet attempted to slap him on the back or address him as the old boy or to try to make him feel as, as a supernatural fossil. He had nothing of that, uh, nothing of that exasperating immense uh, chatter. He was good-tempered. 
had not much to say for himself, was not clever by any means, thank goodness, wrote my friend. It appears, however, that Jim was clever enough to be quietly appreciative of his wit, while on the other hand, he amused him by his naiveness. And so, so what you see developing is this father-son relationship with a, with a very wealthy man. And he said, uh, the man said, the dew is yet on him, and since I had the bright idea of giving him a room in the house and having him at meals, I feel less withered myself. The other day he took it into his head to cross the room with no other purpose but to open a door for me, and I felt more in touch with mankind than I had been for years. He says, ridiculous, isn't it? Of course, I guess there is something, something awful little scrape, which you know all about but I am sure that it is terribly heinous. I fancy one could manage to forgive it. So he's saying, the man is saying, he's got all these good qualities, but there's something, there's something wrong, you know. And he says to Marlowe, I think you know what it is. And he said, but I I could manage to forgive it, because he says then, for my part, I declare I am am unable to imagine him guilty of anything much worse than robbing an orchard. (laughs) (laughs) So, yes, and then at some point it says, it, it's, I forget where it is, uh, where he says it, it's like he, he understands everyone makes mistakes. Yeah, he said, I've sinned yeah, in my yeah, time. Yeah, yes, We've right, all sinned. Yeah, right. You know, so, so, so Conrad is setting us up for the fact that, you know, Jim is going to go through this whole cycle in his life where anytime he hears about the Patna, he runs. Every, no one cares about the Patna. They care about what he's doing now, and um, you know, um, it, it seems like he was on the he was on the, a, a good path. He said, "Thus, my friend, I was trebly pleased at Jim's shaping so well. At the tone of the letter, my own at my own cleverness. Evidently, I had known what I was doing. <laughs> so, so he's saying, hey, I mean, you can, you can imagine Marlowe. I mean, you know, over the years, I've counseled a lot of young people. Sometimes you can't get through to them." And you're just frustrated, but uh, but you know I've had more than one come back and say, "Well, you know, you told me the right thing," and uh, I say thank you, yeah, because uh, you know as we get older, we do to go through our mistakes and we learn things ourselves. So uh, so anyway, uh, yeah, yeah the, the the point is, Jim was shaping up. Then of course, then Marlowe talks about it. he went on another trip, and 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 he came back. And he found another letter. And uh, uh, let me just see. I hope I'm not getting the letters because the guy writes two, two letters. Um, let's see. He said, I made a trip to the northward, and when I returned, I found another letter from my friend waiting for me. This is still on page 141. It was the first envelope I tore open. There are no spoons missing. As far as I know, ran the first line. I haven't been interested enough to inquire. He is gone. Leaving on the breakfast table a formal uh, little note of apology, which is either silly or heartless. Probably both, and that's all one to me. Allow me to say, lest you should have some more mysterious young men in reserve, that I shut up shop, definitely and forever. This is the last eccentricity I shall be guilty of. So, so Jim leaves. Jim, there's some reason he leaves. And then, then uh, uh, it says he, he flung the letter aside and he saw on his table another, another letter. And this is from Jim. 
He said, would you believe it? One chance in a hundred, but it's always that hundredth chance. The little second engineer of the patent had turned up in a more or less destitute state and got a temporary job looking after the machinery of the mill, and I couldn't stand the familiarity of the little beast. Jim wrote from a seaport 700 miles south of the place where he should have been in Clover. And so so Jim you know, goes through this horrible experience where the engineer, one of the engineers shows up at the mill and gets a job there. And so, uh, uh, you know, so Jim takes off, you know. And uh, so, so now he's, um, he's working for Eggstrom and Blake. And uh, this is the, the middle of the page there. And so, so uh, he's he's back to being a water, uh, I guess, a water chandler or, or a ship chandler. So, so essentially, what happens then is uh, there's not enough said in the letter, and so essentially, what Marlowe does, he seeks him out. And so, this is the middle middle of page one forty two. It says he was still with Angstrom and Blake, and we met in what they called our parlor opening of the store. He had that moment come in from boarding a ship and confronted me, head down, ready for a tussle. What have you got to say for yourself? <laughs> so he's really mad. He's, I asked. He looked at me with a troubled smile. Oh, no, he didn't. He made it a kind of confidential business between us. He was mostly uh, mysterious when I came over to the mill. He would wink at me. So, so in other words, he's now talking about the engineer. He would wink at me in a respectful manner as much to say we know what we know, infernally fawning and familiar and that sort of thing. He threw himself into a chair and stared down at his legs. One day we happened to be alone, and the fellow had the cheek to say, Well, Mr. James, I was called Mr. James. There as if I had been the son. Here we are together once more. This is better than the old ship, ain't it? Wasn't it appalling, eh? I looked at him, and he put on a knowing air. Don't you be uneasy, sir, he says. I know a gentleman when I see one, and I know how a gentleman feels. I hope, though, you will be keeping me on this job. I had a hard time of it, too, along with that rotten old patna racket. So, so here, I mean, it had to have been a shock for Jim. I know this is all fiction, but but uh, anyway. So he knows that the, that the, um, that the engineer is going to grease him. Yes, he's he's going to keep it over his head to make sure he keeps the job. Make sure he keeps the job. Right. So, uh, so what does Jim do? He just leaves. Takes yeah. off. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Shocking. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim. Jim. Uh, anyway, Marlowe is just absolutely befuddled by all of this. He says, "I know he liked me." This is what Jim is telling Marlowe. That's what made it so hard. Such a splendid man. That morning, he slipped his hand under my arm. He too was familiar with me. He burst into a short laugh and dropped his chin on his breast. Pah! When I remembered how that little mean, that mean little beast had been talking to me, he began suddenly in a vibrating voice. I couldn't bear to think of myself. I suppose you know. I nodded. More like a father, he cried. His voice sank. I would have had to tell him. I couldn't let it go, could I? Well, I murmured. After a while, I preferred to go, he said. Slowly, this thing must be buried. And so, so here, uh, Jim was really kind of broken up about it, but he just he wouldn't face it. And then eventually, uh, if you go over to page one forty four, Marlowe tells him, "You have thrown away something like a fortune." <laughs> 
He came back to me all the way from the door. Such a splendid old chap, he said. How could I? How could I? His lips twitched. Here it does not matter. Oh, you, you, I began, and to cast about for a suitable word before I came aware there was no name that would just do. He was gone. And so, so the, the point is, Marlowe, I mean, here, Jim had everything going for him. He made a big mistake because he didn't talk to the guy. Well, it was like he was his, his own father. He Remember, he said he couldn't bear to go back, you know, to give the shame to, to see his, his own father at home. Right. So he just couldn't bear for this man as like a father to... Right. to you see, know, Jim's flaw is mm-hmm. if he had talked to the man, the man said, we've all sinned. Exactly, right. He would mm-hmm. have been... And I'm sure his father would have been understanding. Right. Oh yes, yes. As, you know, as mm-hmm. as well. So um, anyway, uh, but then there, here's Jim. Um, you know, he's he's moved on already, and um, you know, so Marlowe knows you know where he's working. He knows the guys where he's working, and uh, now th- this guy Eggstrom and Blake, that company that the ships, uh, you know company that provides all the materials for the, the you know these uh, ships that are on their voyage they thought a lot of them too yes he, he did he was a great worker right he really was and mm-hmm. uh you know he would go out you know he'd go out to sea chasing ships to get them to come in and, and buy their goods and um, i mean it, at one point they talked about his courage but if you look at what he would do he'd grab a sailboat and go out go out in the roughest seas to get on board and get them to come in to get their goods from them, and so so uh, um, uh, you know it's it just it's just really funny that that here he had he had it he had it all going for him again, and um, uh, essentially what happens is there's talk about the Patna, and um, uh, you know as soon as Jim hears that, it, it's it's really kind of an interesting. Uh, scene there is um, you know Jim is uh, you know he's he's actually taking a break you know he's eating he's eating lunch he hears these people come in and they talk about the Patna and he just gets up and walks out he just says goodbye I'm leaving and so so um, you know it's it's uh, if if you if you really wanted to uh, you know read it I think you should read page one forty five. And, um, you know, this is all them coming into, you know, the, the parlor area. And this Captain O'Brien, he's talking about what happened on the grain, on the, um, the Patna. And he says, uh, and this is what Jim hears, he said, he, he calls them skunks. You know, the skipper, the two engineers, and Jim calls them all skunks. And he said, uh, uh, this is uh, the bottom of page 145. It says, Matter, matter, the old man began to shout. What are you engines laughing at? It's no laughing matter. It was. It's a disgrace to human nature. That's what it is. I would, I would, despite being seen in the same room with one of those men. And here Jim is sitting there eating his sandwich. <laughs> he said, uh, he seemed to catch my, my eye alike, and I had to speak out of civility. Skunk, says I, of course, Captain O'Brien. And I wouldn't care to have them here myself. So you're quite safe in this room, Captain O'Brien. Have have a little something cold to drink. And then Angstrom says, uh, well, he says some curse words there. But, uh, you know, Jim, Jim has these incredible skills. 
and he's listening to all this. And then at page 146 at the top, he says, um, he said, all this and the others burst out laughing, and they all go after the old man. And then, sir, that blasted Jim, he puts down the sandwich he had in his hand and walks around the table to me, and there was his glass of beer poured quite full. He says, I'm off, he says, just like this. It isn't half past one yet, says I. He says, you might snatch a smoke first. And, and uh, uh, you know, he, he's saying, no, I'm off. And then down the middle of the paragraph there, it says, a reckless sort of lunatic you've got for a water clerk, Angstrom. And this is one of the uh, other captains were talking to him. So I was feeling my way in a, in a daylight and under uh, a short canvas when there comes flying out of the mist right under my forefoot a boat half underwater, sprays going over the masthead, two frightened uh, assistants on the bottom boards, a yelling fiend at the tiller, hey, hey, shipboy, shipboy, Captain, hey, hey, Angstrom and Blake's man first to speak to you, hey, hey, Angstrom and Blake, hey, hey, whoop, and and who is it? It's Jim. Jim's <laughs> uh, racing through this treacherous sea to get them to come in. And he goes on, he says, I tell you, Captain Marlowe, nobody had a chance against us with a strange ship when Jim was out. The other ship channelers just kept their old customers. But Jim was great. Yeah, so he was he was explaining to Marlowe, you know, the, how great Jim was and how, you know, the example of the kind of thing he did. So yeah. he was upset that he just he left. He just, he just mm-hmm. left. Mm-hmm. Then I think at, at the end of page one, 147 there, it... it uh, Again, it's like, um, you know, Marlowe's bringing this back to his friend. It says, uh, uh, at the very bottom of the page there, he says, he was the mate of the patent of that voyage, I said. And, and they didn't even realize, you know, what was going on. And he's telling him, well, yeah, he was the mate of the patent. And he, I said, feeling that I owed some explanation. In other words, he's defending Jim to Eggstrom and Blake. He said, for a time, Eggstrom remained very still, with his fingers plunged in the hair at the side of his face and then exploded. And who the devil cares about that? So there was all this gossip about it going on, about the Patna. And here's Eggstrom saying, who cares? And that's what, that's what Jim, he cared too much. You know? And he said, uh, uh, he stuffed suddenly his left whisker into his mouth and stood amazed. He exclaimed, I told him the earth wouldn't be big enough to hold his caper. And so, so, in other words, they're trying to tell Jim, you can't keep doing this. You, know, you can't keep, keep um, you know, uh, yeah, moving from job to job. All right. So, any comments you have there? Just, yeah, just that he, it's a, it's a really, it's a shame because... You know, he is such a hard worker, and everyone he works for, uh, you know, would be willing to forgive that. They don't really care about his past. Because what they care about is who he is and what he's doing right now. And, right. And he just, that's that's his flaw. He can't see that because that, that pride just is too big of a thing for him yeah. to overcome. Yeah. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So, again, everybody out there that you're listening, make sure you read all of this. We're giving you just the highlights. And, uh, uh, Again, it is great writing, and the more I read the book, the more I like it. I know I was even a little nervous to even start this book for JBL series, but now I'm really glad we did. <laughs> so, so okay, chapter 19, 
and uh, you know the 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 little title I've given this for my notes here, you know, for this program are the darkness of garp of gossip, and so I think this is where this is the this is the pivotal chapter where I think uh, Conrad really makes his point that you know the darkness that Jim is facing all the time is the gossip of other people. And that's that's the darkness that he's stuck in. But then again, he has his own problems with it. Uh, top of page 148, uh, Marlowe says, I have told you these two episodes at length to show his manner of dealing with himself under the new conditions of his life. There were many others of the sort, more than I could count on the fingers of my two hands. So to me, that's interesting is how many jobs did he quit? You know, he's only given us two. And so, but he goes on to say they were all equally tinged by a high-minded absurdity of intention which made their futility profound and touching. To fling away your daily bread so, so as to get your hands free for a grapple with a ghost may be an act of prosaic heroism. Men had done it before. The we who have lived know full well that is not the haunted soul, but the hungry body that makes an outcast. And men who had eaten and meant to eat every day had applauded the, the credible folly. He was indeed unfortunate for all his recklessness, could not carry him out from under the shadow. There was always a doubt of his courage. So, so essentially what, what um, uh, Marlowe is saying there is... is he was grappling with a ghost. He's he's grappling with something that he can't really get a hold of, and um, you know it's it's like, <clears throat> you know he he could have probably laughed, laughed some of it off, or he could have tried to explain it to people, you know, um, but uh, you know he didn't. He just he he decided to run, and that that's what made the doubt of his courage. But he was—he was still a very courageous, a courageous young man. The way he would go out and after ships and, and all of that. So uh, it's interesting now. If we just go down, so so we do have a third place now, where he's he's gone to, and he's now in Bangkok, and he's working for the Yucker Brothers, and it, that's really kind of interesting. They're they're actually Swiss people. And they have that they sell furniture and all all these kind of things. He said, uh, Conrad says at the bottom of the page there. He says, for instance, Bangkok, where he found employment with Yucker Brothers, Charters and Teak Merchants. It was almost pathetic to see him go about in sunshine, hugging his secret. So he was still carrying it. We don't know how many places he's been, which was uh, known to the very upcountry logs on the river. Now he's saying everybody know. It seems like everybody knows about this. You know, it's it's like it gets talked about from port to port to port. And he talks about this character Schomburg. Now, now Schomburg is the hotel keeper. Jim actually is boarding in his hotel, and and what does he say about Schomburg? Is that that he was the one that kept the gossip going? You know, this this he was staying at the hotel. If you just um, uh, look at the very bottom of 148, it says Schomburg, the keeper of the hotel where he boarded, uh, it says uh, a hirsute, and that just means hair, hair Aslantian, that's a German shepherd, so this guy must have been really hairy, of many bearing 
uh, of manly bearing, an irrepressible retailer of all the scandalous gossip of the place, would with both elbows on the table impart an adorned version of the story to any guest who cared to imbibe knowledge with the more costly liquors. So, yeah, that's a good picture. You can imagine him putting his elbows on the table, you know, the bar right. or the table, and you know, talking and he's, about he's it, talking about mm-hmm. the Patna, right, to get business, mm-hmm. you know. So um, he says, and mind you, the nicest fellow you could meet would be uh, his generous conclusion quite superior. It says a lot for the casual crowd that frequented Schomburg's establishment that Jim managed to hang out in Bangkok. For a whole six months, <laughs> so so he's in Bangkok for six months, and he's he's um, uh, he's he's going through, you know, you know, all the gossip. It's right there. It's right there in the hotel with him. Now it goes on there to say um, that the owner of this the the you know, the Yucker Brothers, Sigmund Muck, uh, Yucker, really believed that Jim was just had a great capacity. That's page one forty nine, and. Uh, uh, but Jim now is getting himself into a different kind of trouble, and uh, I think we have just a few minutes we can talk about that. Do you want to talk about that? Um, yeah, well, yes. He he gets into a scuffle with uh, a person from the Royal Siamese Navy. Over. Uh, yes. Oh, well, the man had probably had, says he had had enough to drink to turn nasty after the sixth game, of billiards. Of billiards, right. <laughs> right. And he made some scornful cool. remark at Jim's expense. Yeah. So, so, and then... Jim beat him up and It looks like, like Jim threw him in the water. Jim beat him up yes. and threw him in the water. <laughs> and broke a, a cue stick, yes. Yeah, and broke a cue stick yes. at the same time. So, so, and that would, that did not go off well. No, that, that's like later on, Schoenberg says that, you know, he was, they probably would have overlooked anything else. And they loved, but that, you couldn't overlook that. No. 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 All right. So, so anyway, Marlo uh, kind of rescues him, rescues him from that, takes him out of that area, takes him to a new place, and we're running out of time for that. So we'll cover that next time. So we'll get into chapter twenty. So that's all the time we have for today's program. Next time, Deborah and I will begin discussing the next phase of Jim's life on Patizen. And so, so we're actually getting, well, we won't have to deal with anything with chip channelers or anything. It's, it's a whole new phase of Jim's life. So you can buy Lord Jim at Amazon.com. You may be able to also find a good used copy at abebooks.com. You also may be able to find a copy in your local bookstore. And, of course, you can check your local library. Please write me any comments you may have to jbl at pcog.org. You can follow jbl on Twitter at jbliterature1. You can also follow JBL on Facebook. Simply search for just the best literature. So until next time, keep reading. You've been listening to Just the Best Literature on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG. Streaming online at kpcg.fm and thetrumpet.com.